Hello and welcome to Man on a Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm doing a podcast entitled A Brief History of the England National Team. I'm just going to start. 1930, the beginning of the first World Cup, I'm really, over this podcast, get to a stage where we're at now. Where we're the beginning of the 2018 World Cup. I'm really just trying to an- an- analyse where the national team, where the FA, where all of the the stakeholders, the managers, the players, the fans, and really how we've got to this stage. I think the element to start off is that English football wasn't really designed to be good at international football tournaments, in the sense that with, if you look at the other major English team sports, with rugby you have a sort of amateur club rugby league system whereby it's subservient to international rugby. International rugby is what gets the, the huge attendances, it gets the most media coverage, and gets the interest of the casual fan. So there's never really been the genesis of international rugby, there was never really much of an issue between club and country. You then had the four nations, the five nations, and now the six nations. Now with cricket, you you know, international cricket starts in the you know, 1870s, and just and it has always been a part of cricket, and then county cricket really develops hand in hand. It becomes a an established pathway. So county cricket is where you get your England cricketers from. And that's worked quite well. So no matter how strong county is in terms of popularity, you'd say in the 50s, the 30s, and just before World War One, there's always been test matches which have sold out. England versus Australia is a huge game. And whereby tournament football in the guise of the World Cup and latterly the European Championship comes around much later. By 1930, English football already has an established league system, a cup competition. It's not really... You know, you do have the the home nations, but that's really an offshoot of the club game. You have... And you have international friendlies, but they're, they're sort of a bolt-on. They're just... Something that happens midweek or in a, or weekend, you organise it, but it's not particularly. There's no rankings. Now, really, the the closest that you have is the Olympic football tournament. But there's a club. Well, there's an issue with the governance of the Olympic Games, and at no point does the FA try and create an international tournament. It's not in their purview. It's not really in their interest, and they know. I know at this, I know at this time that the FA are considered as arrogant. So in other words, they're it's arrogant that they don't get involved in the World Cup. And to an extent, that is there's an element of truth into it. But if they really were that arrogant, I you would imagine that they would have tried to create their own tournament, and that they would have just simply, you know, really tried to supersede FIFA. But they don't. In some ways, they're, I think, more than aware that they don't have that 
power. If you compare it, let's say, with how the MCC administered cricket, there was a colonial aspect to it. In other words, the game had come from England, it had been spread to Australia, India, New Zealand, to various outposts you know, in the British Empire. And as a result, for them, it was natural that the, you know, the MCC at Lords would you know, basically administer the game. But football doesn't develop in that way. It doesn't develop, you know, it's not a huge point in India, in Australia, New Zealand, you know, Ceylon, which, which became Sri Lanka. It doesn't really take off there in anywhere near the same level as cricket does. Where, cricket, where football really expands is in Europe and Latin America. At which point there's no shared language, shared culture. And so, as a result, the English FA plays a huge role in the you know, development of the Latin American game. But from a entirely benign... There, there's no practical benefit to the English game by sending touring teams to grow the game in Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil. They didn't... The FA didn't really want to administer the world game. You know, they developed it just simply as an element of barely, I wouldn't even call it soft power. It was simply the belief that that was the right thing to do, is that those countries had an interest in football, and by sending touring teams, that would benefit their game, and it would benefit the game as a whole. Maybe you can argue that there was an an element of arrogant in the sense that yes we were so much better sending our teams would help and would showcase the the english game but there's an element of truth to that but it i don't see how there was no financial benefit they didn't get huge amounts of money for doing so and and so really all the the english fa does in latin america is simply back up the sort of handful of british expats who had helped develop the game in, you know, like I say, Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil. But really, what these points make is is that FIFA was an inevitability. It, it had to come from Europe in the sense that what FIFA had was that there were communities, you know, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, and French, there were huge expat communities based out in, you know, that part of Latin America. So they there was more, I suppose, a shared culture, which then makes it a lot easier for them to integrate into FIFA and to really feel like they were a major player within it, which is why that you have the sort of political decision to host the first World Cup in Uruguay as opposed to Europe. But in terms of not going to Uruguay in 1913, I think there's a lot of factors in it. Is that there was, at that stage, there's no guarantee that the World Cup would have taken off. There was lots of little tournaments and li- that had that could have easily, you know, become what we, now can, what we now know as the World Cup. There was no guarantee that that tournament in 1930 was going to be it. It was a huge amount of travel, expenses, and really, this what I call thirty to fifty, the the people's game in terms of the FA, is that the World Cup in nineteen thirty 
there's no media coverage, so you're not going to have any movie photos. There's no radio. There's you know there's no fan. You know there's virtually going to be no England if England had sent a team or Britain or the Welsh, the Irish, Scots, whatever. No one would. How many fans could they have brought? It it was three months there, three months back. It it just wasn't practicable for you know any kind of major amount of fans to have gone. So really, it would have happened. Effectively, the nineteen thirty World Cup would have happened behind closed doors. Really, to the average football fan, it would have been a major undertaking for the players to do so. And as a result. You can you have to look at it in this way. The FA at this point were basically administering the world's most sophisticated professional sports league. In other words, the one that had been going on the longest, the one that had you had a pyramid. So you had different leagues, regions, you had a cup competition, you had you know teams from different countries playing in terms of Wales and to an extent Scotland. It it wasn't really logical to really expect them to have the I suppose the visionary <laughs> nature to think okay well we should actually really get behind this World Cup we should really support it in other words they were more they were insular but they were insular for I suppose the right reasons in the sense that what they were dealing with at home was more than enough on their plate this is an am- relatively speaking the, the FA is really a committee based amateur organization that is doing you know very much professional work they're dealing with multiple huge stadiums you're talking about 50 60 70,000 people attending games you're talking about prof- you know you're talking about referees you're talking about safety at stadiums that no other league was really dealing with I mean, even, I suppose, the closest in, in terms of size was baseball, but that was just the American League and the National League. You, you were talking about maybe 20 teams, barely that. You had a few minor leagues there, but that wasn't administered by professional baseball. So as a result, whereby the Football League and the FA were administering, you know, 60, 70, 80 clubs and a you know, major cup competition. But maybe I'm being overly generous, but I can understand why they didn't get involved. 34 maybe a little bit less so, but other countries weren't. It wasn't something that immediately caught the public's imagination. And by the time you get to the mid-30s, you get the sort of beginning of sort of nationalism. There's an element of nationalism in the 1930 World Cup, which I'll probably discuss a little bit later. But by 34, and specifically 38, when the World Cup's held in Italy, the political rumblings in Central Europe are having an impact. And the fact that the fascist governments, especially with the 36 Olympics in Germany and the thir- and obviously the 38 World Cup in Italy fascist countries were using sport and to an extent so were the Soviets in on the left of the political spectrum it's important to note that the English FA and I suppose the political establishment never used sport in that manner there was no 
nationalistic sense. There was a sense of pride in when the England cricket team did well, rugby and football naturally, but there was no political pressure on them. The only time that really political pressure gets pushed on to English football is by the fascist country themselves. So the famous instance where the English players had to do the Nazi salute when they went to play out in Germany, and there was a huge amount of issues when Germany played a friendly at White Hart Lane, and a thousands upon thousands of German fans descended onto London, and that was when there was a you know there was a huge amount of political tension, and there were. Issues with regards to safety, and there was a huge police operation. Eventually, the game went off without many issues, although one Spurs fan did jump onto the roof of the West End and I think ripped down the um, Nazi flag, which I believe grew quite a large cheer, but that's neither here nor there. But certainly, this period was a time when the FA were, in some respects, politically. Were apolitical, which I think neatly brings us on to maybe the first, I suppose the ori- the original sin of international football and I suppose England and to an extent the British Isles problem is that there was a t- a great British team that entered into the Olympic tournament for football and I believe they either won or got the silver medal and I think there was only one Olympics that they entered. And it never caught on, and there was always sort of political issues within the home nation's FAs about being part of, you know, a, t- a great British football team. And it's, it's still even relevant today to an extent, the issue that you had at the London Olympics. And so as a result, it's probably the first missed opportunity, is that had let's say, a great British team won the Olympics. And you have to remember, the Olympics was a very strong tournament. It really was probably the precursor. And for maybe the first two or three tournaments was actually bigger than the World Cup in terms of standard and in terms of importance that the average fan on the street would have taken it. And yet, this is where... And I suppose the it's an interesting one in the sense that the FA were really caught in a huge sort of conundrum in that the idea of the Olympics was is that these were amateur athletes. However, not every single team that pitched up at the Olympic football tournament were amateurs. They were, some people, some of them were professionals, assumed names, sort of job titles that were vague enough, is that it wasn't a level playing field. And simply with the issues of trying to get a great British team in the first place, with the issues with the other home nations FA and the amateur as a professional debate, it made sense to a regard just to, to leave it. But had that Team GB had that level of success, maybe won two or three gold medals in a row, that really would have produced the underlying success that may well have not only built up the principle of having a you know great British team at major tournaments but also the success that could have been built off for when you know, British teams eventually did enter major international tournaments, for example, the World Cup. But that was lost. I mean, a lot of Uruguay's are, you know, 
original success comes from them them having a, a absolutely fantastic you know couple of international teams one of which won gold and that was really the precursor for their success at the 30 world cup but again as i said it's an original sin that opportunity was lost and as a result british teams were at a disadvantage when they did <laughs> enter the world cup which I'll, I'll discuss in more detail a bit later on in the podcast for me one of the most fascinating elements of looking at the history of the World Cup, especially the first sort of three or four tournaments, is really understanding why the Latin American teams were so successful so quickly, considering that their, I suppose, football playing and football infrastructure was really barely a generation old by the time you get to the 30s and, you know, 50s. And I think what it is is that English football really had a National Pyramid League structure, a, a FA Cup that had several different sort of formats. And by the time you get to the 30s, it was a professional, you know, a tournament where the professional teams entered. You did have amateur teams, but they would be, you know, weeded out by the time you would get to, you know, sort of the fourth, fifth round quarterfinals and so on. But the Latin American system was completely different. I mean, they... They're really the progenitors of major tournaments in the sense that originally, and I'm probably oversimplifying to an extent, but essentially what you would have is the major cities would play against each other. So you're talking about, you know, sort of Montevideo against Buenos Aires, Rio and, you know, Sao Paulo. And they would play against each other and effectively... It was city against city, but in a de facto sense, it was really the national team. It was the best players would go, would basically travel into the cities to get, you know, into the big teams, the big professional teams. And as a result, they, those, it became in effect, that system was a really effective scouting system. So especially Uruguay is a classic example. In other words, you've really got to only about two or three major cities. And essentially, if you, if you were good at football, the only way that you, your career or anything, hopes or dreams that you had, you would have to go into the cities. You would have to then be scouted in the cities, and that was where you would then get into the team. And as a result, it centralised everything. In other words, there was you know only X amount of stadiums, there was only X amount of teams. And as a result, the standard at the absolute top level was really high. There wasn't a huge amount of leagues or different teams, but the teams at the top were really good and were effectively, I suppose, I suppose comparable in a way to the sort of county championship. In other words, it was a system by which you know, the teams would play off against each other for, you know, city or state championships. But really, the end goal was, is that if you represented your city playing against another city, which would then, which then seamlessly really moved into, you know, the idea of representing Argentina, Uruguay and Brazil. Now, when you compare that to the British system, which as a league system was completely decentralised, in other words, the first couple of divisions were 
entirely national. It was only really when you got to the third division that there was an element of regionalisation in terms of north and south, the most basic form of regionalisation. So as a result, there was a huge spread of talent. In other words, the best players in Manchester would generally play for one of the Manchester clubs or one of the sort of satellite you know, villages, towns, so on and so forth. Same with the Midlands, really same with the South and London. So there was never a stage of which all of the best players congregated in one area. In other words, most teams were really based on what your talent was like in the surrounding, let's say, 10 square miles. I mean, there wasn't, and really outside of that, the only other option would be essentially to pay a great Welsh player or a great Scottish player to come down and turn professional. But, so in effect, it was very difficult really to create a national team because there was no, the FA really lacked the infrastructural ability to scout the entire country, to ascertain who was better than who was better in the south than compared to the north. It it never really it's it, you have to think of it, it's the nineteen thirties. So as a result, they end up in this sort of classic British sort of way of dealing with it. They come up with a committee. So you get a handful of people and they then decide, you know, who should then play for the national team. And at the time that would have been the most natural and logical way of doing it. But obviously, there's biased, there's groupthink. It wasn't the most effective way of getting the best 11 players. But for them, it was the best to hand. And it wasn't as if they had a model from which to build from. Whereby the sort of French game, the Italian leagues, they were, much, they were at a much less developed state. And as a result, it was much easier to have, you know, the best players playing for only a handful of clubs, which meant that they played together every single week, which meant that when they did turn up for the national team, you would then you know, have something to work off of, whereby England was always far more diffuse. It was always a bunch of effectively random strangers all coming together, all having to then, within a very short period of time, build into some level of cohesion, which meant that really the French, the Italians were able to catch up a lot more quicker. In fact, you can almost basically argue that English football being so far in front ultimately was their downfall because they weren't therefore able to compete as well as the emerging nations, really. And so really going back to Latin America, these city versus city competitions, which then became effectively country versus country, leads to then the creation of the Copa America, which is really where the first major international tournament comes from. It, you know, it's before the World Cup, before the African Cup of Nations, and long before the, you know, European Championships. So as a result, it, it had a popularity and a cultural meaning for the players, supporters, and administrators. The, it created a, a playing style. And it was built off of existing structures and teams. It wasn't quite the sort of higgledy-piggledy way that international football came out. International football really, you know, in terms of the first game was England versus Scotland. You know, it effectively it was, well, we'll just get an English team together and we'll go up and play a Scottish team. Yes, we now consider it a national game, but it wasn't as if 
you know, there was months and months of discussions over who was the best 11 English players. They just got a bunch of decent English pros. And Scotland, because it's smaller, there's less, you know, obviously less towns, cities and all the rest of it. They got a representative 11. It wasn't necessarily the best Scottish 11 that they had available that day. People didn't think that far in advance. It was just a game of football. It was a friendly and they played it. Whereby with the sort of Latin American championship, it was different. It was, we want to beat the Argentinians, we want to beat Uruguay, and they felt exactly the same way about beating the Brazilians. It created a, really, in effect, a sort of sophisticated system whereby European international football was very laissez-faire. It was just, you'd play a friendly as and when. Then when you factor in the Uruguayans and the Argentines and the Brazilians entering the Olympic football tournaments. So really, by the time you get to 30, you had teams that had a style and that they played together and that they are used to playing and representing their country. The fans were behind it. They'd also then, by going to the Olympics, had experience of not just playing against themselves, whereby something like the, the home nations, which was effectively, you, know, you would know the people that you were playing against, you'd play against them in the league. Whereby, if you go out to the Olympics, you'd be playing against the European nations, the Asian nations. You would have an understanding of what different styles of football teams were playing. So by the time you get to 30, and then you factor in the home advantage of it being hosted in... Latin America, it's not really a surprise that the Latin American teams did so well. I think the classic example is really yeah. the 1930 World Cup final. So it's hosted in Montevideo at the Stadio Monumental. So I sell out thousands, thousands, just about 60, maybe possibly even 70, maybe 80. A lot of people snuck in. And it's Uruguay versus Argentina. And it's a huge local derby. And the Argentines are you know, fearing for their lives. In other words, they come in at half-time to one-up. And the famous one is that their captain believed that his wife and sister were going to be shot. There was rumours that players, well, that the fans had come in with um, guns, bombs. And that if the Argentines won, they wouldn't leave the stadium alive. There was a police and army presence, but... The pressure that they wanted. I mean, the Argentines come in at half-time, 2-1 up. And some people have argued that it's injuries, home advantage. But the second half, Argentina do not turn up. And they go on to lose the game 4-2. And it's a huge national outpouring of joy. The party goes on for four or five days. And the Argentines are allowed to leave without any bother or issue. So clearly there's a, a nationalist side to international football in Latin America that is verging on violence. Whereby if you compare it to English football friendlies of the 1930s and the home nations, it doesn't inspire that level of devotion or nationalist feeling. And by the time the World Cup really returned... well. A re returns to Europe in 34 and 38, the fascist nations have really taken that nationalistic feeling onwards. And so what they're able to do is really subliminate 
their league structure to the benefit of the national team. The classic example is the Argentine captain in the 30 World Cup. It's a fantastic, I suppose what you'd say, modern terms, parlance, the centre-half decides that he's given an offer to go to Juventus straight after the tournament in 30 ends and take on Italian citizenship and he gets a, a particularly well-paying job I believe at the Fiat factory to then go play for Juventus and he accepts and as a result he plays in the 1934 World Cup final and wins playing for Italy. The, the 34 and 38 World Cups the Stylization. So, in other words, the Italians would um, change their national kits so it was all black and with a sort of fascist symbol on the chest instead of the previous, this sort of Italian badge. And there was huge protests in France before a few of the Italian national team games. And it's and really, and it culminates in the '38 World Cup where Mussolini absolutely is desperate for Italy to win, for the for the stadiums to look perfect, for everything just to basically show the power of Italy, the power of Mussolini and the power of his brand of fascism. So there's question marks over the refereeing for the Italian games, any number of things. It is virtually guaranteed that Italy will get to the final and they will win. Which they do so. I mean, they were a great footballing team, but at the same time, they had every measure of home advantage. And there's always the, some people consider it an apocryphal story, where basically they get a, a telegram just before the um, 1938 final from Dulce going, win or die. Whether that was ever actually sent, there's arguments for and against. But the fact that it's believable and that those players really did believe on some level that if they didn't win, there would be problems with you know the government, and that after they do win the tournament, it's they are given whatever they want. Literally, they are invited to Mussolini's palace. If it's women, if it's cars, if it's money, if it's property, land, houses, whatever they want, they're given. And so you can sort of understand in in this period of time from thirty to thirty eight, really where. England wasn't nationalistic in that point. The government were not expecting the English team to win. The public weren't expecting it to win in that regards. And so boycotting the 38 World Cup made complete sense. And and in some ways that's a good thing. It's a good thing that England didn't have that kind of level of obsession with the national team. It's Interesting that they didn't, you know, damage the integrity of the league structure. They didn't try and stick all of the best England players on one team so that that would then benefit the national team. In some ways, it's it's a form of arrogance in the sense they didn't feel they needed to do that. And they didn't feel they, on some level, there was an unwillingness to, to engage in tournament. And, you know, to an extent that was, you know, hubris on some levels. But I hope this part of the podcast at least presents it in a more understanding light that the situation in Europe in the 1930s, it wasn't as if an England team would have had the 
advantages that the Latin American teams or even that the you know that the Italians had. And so as a result, I don't think even had they entered, <laughs> they wouldn't yeah, they could have potentially won, but the the factors against them were huge in terms of travel and in terms of the Italians and the Latin Americans did want it more and that you know even coming up to I'm gonna now start talking about Brazil fifty, is that it really was the final reckoning for the first sort of nationalist era of the World Cup. Is that in Brazil fifty you've got a military dictatorship looking to really sell the image of the country as modern and modern and booming. They're trying to boost the legitimacy of their dictatorship, both for the people at home and for the watching public. So you've got brand new stadiums, brand new infrastructure. And really, as a result, they were able to key into the, the huge desire of the home fans for a triumph. But as a result, it leads to the, the Maracanaza, the nightmare. As a, They lose the de facto final to the huge rivals Uruguay. Now, you have to understand that, there, that this was... 200,000 people at the Maracanã and a handful, possibly not even in the thousands, of Uruguayan fans. This is a crowd that is absolutely expectant that they are going to win the World Cup. The front pages of the newspapers in Rio had already proclaimed them world championships. They didn't even have to win the game to become world champions. They just needed a draw. And to lose to a late goal, having led, was just beyond shocking it was an absolute nightmare it was a national tragedy a state of mourning not only to lose but to lose to Uruguay who now won two World Cups and Brazil hadn't even won it and they hadn't won it at home you know it led to huge changes in terms of the the presentation they had a a national competition to change the colours of the national team because they no longer wanted to wear the all-white kit that they had previously worn because that was now for in, indubitably linked with the, the nightmare of the Maracana and that final loss. So, ironically enough, the um, winning entry was the yellow, blue, green, white, the absolutely legendary ensemble that they still wear. It was actually Uruguayan that came up with the design. Not a Brazilian. But from the, I think, ruins of that defeat led to a change in the way how they played and the way how they trained. And as a result, it, it led to sort of an unprecedented spell of dominance from 58 to 70. They won three World Cups and the fourth, which was the 66 World Cup in England, they were kicked out of that tournament. They were brutally tackled, ironically enough, by their cultural... <laughs> Cousins in the Portuguese, ironically enough. Ironically enough, with the 1950 World Cup, the, that arrogance didn't come from just hosting the tournament. That arrogance was there in the 34 tournament, which was held in France. They had already, the Brazilian teams were in the semi finals, and what they had done was booked ahead their travel to the final before even playing the semi and 
they eventually lost that semi-final and then had to make their own um, way to the other side of France for the third place playoff. But when you look at Brazilian football, there seems to be a huge amount of times in which the government's political needs and the need to win a World Cup cross. So in other words, in 1970, the dictatorship was absolutely you know, on the verge of collapse. There was a huge amount of tension in the time, and the, there's a conspiracy theory which outlines that the CIA poisoned Gordon Banks in the quarter, just before the quarterfinal against Germany, so that that would then knock England out, which would smooth the path to... Um, Brazil winning the tournament, which the CIA thought would help calm down the uh, simmering political tensions at home. And yes, they did win the, the World Cup in seventy. And yes, the political tensions in Brazil did decline precipitously after that victory. So you can read into that what you will. But And even going up to the sort of 2014 World Cup, they wanted to... Not only the government needed Brazil not only to do well but to also win because there was the huge sort of public backlash from the spending for the Olympics and the World Cup. I mean, the last, what I would say, nationalist World Cup would be the 78 World Cup in Argentina, where the Junta again wanted to produce a fantastic, iconic tournament in terms of the ticker tape, parades before the game and the the style of football and the stadiums and the atmosphere as a way of saying to the world that they can also you know run a tournament and show Argentina in its best light which ergo would show them in their best light the junta in its best light and cover up its appalling human rights record so throughout the history of the world cup there's always been a political nationalism reoccurs. It is actually a currency for sporting success. Whereby, if you look at the sort of English tragedies in terms of football, so you've got losing to America 1-0 in Belo Horizonte in the Brazilian 50 World Cup, the first time England had entered. The quarter-final defeat in 70 and the first home defeat at Wembley to a non-home nation in the Hungary when they beat the English team 6-3. But they don't have the same level of political and nationalistic upheaval. You know, I think the, the closest that we get is that the 70 election, which takes place a few days after the, maybe a couple of weeks after the quarter-final defeat, the sitting Labour government lose. But that's it's told in an almost anecdotal fashion. It's not considered... You know, it's something that is mentioned in textbooks, but almost in a humorous aside, it is not considered a major political moment at which point political parties after that started to host, hold elections during the World Cup or tried to utilise you know, success at cricket or success at rugby or success at the Olympics as a way of staying in power or winning an election. That that doesn't take place. I mean, even on a sort of sporting level, it doesn't have anywhere near the levels of 
upheavals or reforms. In other words, losing to America in Belo Horizonte, it was basically a terrible pitch. The English absolutely battered the Americans. The American keeper has a brilliant wonder game. And they nick a goal on the break. But at the same time, they're out in Brazil playing up at, you know, in the sort of hotter north of the country in the middle of summer. And at the same time, they're still going out there playing in wool shirts. They're not wearing the lightweight sort of blends that the Brazilians are wearing. And the English players are sort of aghast at, you know, that they're basically wearing just completely inappropriate equipment, uh, inappropriate kit in comparison with the other countries. But that doesn't lead to any kind of change when they get home. In, and also the boots that the Brazilians were wearing were lightweight and allowed them to play the sort of you know, pretty beautiful football that we associate with Brazil of that era. Yeah, it doesn't change how boots are made in this country. So by the time you get to Wembley and against Hungary in 1956, the English players are still wearing their heavyweight boots, which are, I'd imagine you could have probably argued suit English conditions. But the, the Hungarians come out and it's sort of commented in when the teams are lining up like they're wearing carpet slippers. And what happens? The Hungarians absolutely run rings around the England team. 6-3 is probably on some level a flattering result. A few months later, they go out and play in Budapest and England get battered 7-1, which really showed that it was not a freak result in any way, shape or form. But none of those defeats, not even the... You know, the mistakes that were made with regards to 70, in other words, taking Bobby Charlton off. Sir Ralph Ramsey isn't sacked. He carries on. Nothing really fundamentally is altered or changed by that. But whereby, with the Brazilians, when they have their nightmare moment, things change. You know, even after the horror of, of Brazil losing 7-1 to Germany, eventually that has paved the road to... Tite becoming the coach and then the results have trended back upwards and Brazil are looking more like the Brazil, the, the stereotype of Brazil, the samba football, as opposed to the sort of far more utilitarian Brazil teams that we, you'd say in 94 when they won it and the sort of teams that Dunga, when he was coached twice, put out. But English football doesn't have that level, I suppose, of introspection or even a sort of reform zeal for when things go horribly wrong so in other words when the germans you know lose 5-1 to england when they get knocked out of the euro 2000 at group stages immediately there is a review done on how german football will be run how the youth football it becomes much more centralized there's a huge amount of money pumped into the grassroots and yet within you know, a few years, on the short-term level, they get to the, the finals of World Cup 2002. In the long term, it paves the way to them winning the 2014 World Cup with a huge, young talent base that has allowed German football to really become one of the dominant teams in Europe. They were able to send out effectively a B team to the Confederations Cup and win quite easily. Whereby when England have their get knocked out in Euro 2000 at the group stages, 
there isn't the same level. Kevin Keegan doesn't get sacked, and really no major changes result out of that. I think what this night what this nicely leads on to is really the sort of a, a major question that this podcast is trying to learn is that what makes a national side great? I think that there are many different factors, some of which are, you know, interrelated, but I think there's maybe sort of three or four points. So I think the first and most obvious one is a history of winning. It acts as an inspiration and effectively a base camp from which you realise that your forebears are able to do it, therefore you're able to do it. So you'd say, okay, who's the most successful teams in terms of international football? Well, Brazil, Germany, Italy, Argentina, and to an extent Uruguay. But that is historical and relative to the size of the country. It is a very small country. Okay, the next one, again, is a, a pretty obvious one. It's a great side. And, it's oft- and the caveat to that is often underpinned by a great domestic side. So with Spain, 2010, you have the Barcelona side. Holland in 74 and 78, the Ajax team, the total football. With Germany in 74, you have the great Bayern Munich team. You know, Hungary of the 50s, you know, the 54 World Cup to get to the final, you have a fantastic Honved team. You know, Austria of the 30s, the the wonder team. You know, Uruguay of the 20s and 30s, with their fantastic national side at you know, the World Cup and uh, Olympic level. You then have the teams that you could say will have a singular sort of talent. You know, Zidane in 98 and 2006, Socrates in 82, Ronaldo in 98 and 2002, you know, Pele, Garincha, et al. in 58, 62, 70, Cruyff in 74, and the players, you know, Knee skins, you know, Beckenbauer in 74, Maradona in 82, 86, 90. You know, you've had the tournament in 1982, the Platini led French team. You have Paolo Rossi and his role in getting Italy over the line with that fantastic hat trick against Brazil. Or you have maybe a great coach or an ideologue. You know, Cesar Menotti in 78, Renus Michael in 74, Lippi in 2006, maybe Arrigo Sacchi from a defensive perspective in 94, you know, Del Bosque with an assist from sort of Pep Guardiola at club level in 2010. All of these things, they, they overlap in a way. <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is, is that it offers you different opportunities for winning. So in other words, you could say that Johan Cruyff really birthed total football with Renus Michael but in a way what it offered was is that the great Dutch teams could follow that so they did that in winning the Euro 88 beating the Soviets with the fantastic Van Basten volley but also you could go against that so in sort of 2010 2014 where they get to the semis and they get to the final they really go against the, the concepts of total football with the you know uniform four three three, and so they go against that ideology because then they don't have the players to really match up to that great Dutch team. So by going against that, that's a way of you know really refreshing and re and changing Dutch football 
which in the end doesn't work because the Dutch team are now in a state where they haven't qualified for the last two major international tournaments. But, again, like Uruguay, relative to size and with the playing players they had, to get to a World Cup quarter-final, oh, sorry, World Cup semi-final and a World Cup final is impressive in comparison, let's say, with England, which has a much higher population, a much better domestic league. It has those kind of benefits. But really, historically, the more successful teams have styles and methods that allows to best fit the, the genius players they have or the resource at any sort of given time. And the best teams are the ones that leave a practical legacy for future generations. In other words, when the Dutch win in Euro 88, that's as much, you know, there still is credit that you'd have to give to Johan Cruyff. The team in 88 with, you know, Rijkaard, with Hullet, with Van Basten, they just had fantastic players. Danny Blind, that all over the pitch, all playing for some of the biggest clubs in the Europe and the world. And so they were able to you know, build off of the legacy of 74 and 78. Mm. In the same sense that you know, Franz Beckenbauer and you know, his team in 74 and how you know, the elements of coming from behind that the German team show in 70 and in 74 is you know, in some ways what helps power on the Germans in the 80s, or the West Germans even, in the 80s and the 90s with regards to you know, winning on golden goals, winning on penalties. It's that kind of lasting legacy and really the interesting thing on this list is that I couldn't really sit there and name any English players with who would effectively deserve to be on that list I think that you could possibly maybe argue Lineker in 86 and 90 maybe Bobby Charlton in 66 but I think I'll discuss them again at a later part of this podcast but it's instructive that you, I couldn't really put Alf Ramsey on the list of great coach or ideologue. We've never really had a singular talent who you could base an idea of football on. That you could, there, there's no English equivalent of Maradona or Platini or a lot of our talents are tend to be more traditional. They're good sense of hearts, they're good sense of forwards, they're not sort of transcendental talents like Cruyff, like Beckenbauer, like Maradona, like Pelé. Mm. I would argue that England and Britain to a lesser extent, we create great managers, but not great coaches and not great ideologues. Effectively, the strength of our league system is our weakness and downfall in international tournaments. We have a highly sort of decentralised system. We have a sort of succession of nearly great or fleetingly dominant sides. So you've got the Manchester United team of the late 60s. You know, the Tottenham team of the early 60s with under Billy Nick. You have the Leeds team of Dom Revy in the 70s. You have Clough in the 70s and early 80s with Forrest. You have Liverpool in the 70s to the 80s. 
under sort of Shankly, Paisley, Fagan, Dalglish. You know, you have Ferguson, Manchester United of the 90s and early 2000s. What links all of those sides? It's They're all reliant on home nation players. So Manchester United, you have Dennis Law of Scotland and George Brest of Northern Ireland. The Tottenham team of the early 60s was reliant on John White of Scotland, Dave Mackay of Scotland, Danny Blanchflower of Northern Ireland, Pat Jennings of Northern Ireland. The leads of the 70s are, you know, dependent on Bremner and Lorimer, both Scottish. You know, Clough at Nottingham Forest, you have Martin O'Neill and John Robertson. You know, the Liverpool team is reliant on Hanson, Souness, Dalgleish. No, the Ferguson team of the 90s and 2000s is reliant on Ryan Giggs and Roy Keane. As a result, no England manager of the post-war years could really rely on a great team providing the spine of the national team. You know, it, it was almost impossible to translate the success of an English club side to the national team, even if the, you know, English club teams, both home and abroad were very successful, even dominant. But it, it didn't ever impact the national team in a positive way because there's always going to be the key cogs of all of the great British, what the great English sides of from the 60s to the 2000s were always had key home nation players. And there's no comparable nation that has this level of problem. In other words, the great Brazilian teams of the 70s and 80s and the 50s played in the Brazilian leagues. Yep, by the time you reach the sort of 70s and 80s, they start moving across to Europe. But that ends up in a positive by the time they reach to the 90s, is that the cream of Brazilian talent is in Europe playing at the highest level. And so they are able to be more successful in international football because they are used to playing against European players, against, you know, players from all across the world in the European leagues. Whereby, you know, no Italian team is dependent on, let's say, you know, a handful of people from San Marino. That would be probably the nearest example I could think of the top of my head. It would almost be as if, yeah, not, even the, the, not even the clubs in Spain are... You know, in the Basque area, have the same level of talent that would be comparable to the players that I've listed just there. And so it's really, I, I like to call it the peculiar English disease of Britishness. In other words, because there is no British national team, you know, look at the, the record that the other home nations have, is that Wales qualify effectively by accident. What happens is is that Israel are put into a group and none of the other nations from the Middle East will play them. So effectively they qualified for the World Cup without playing anybody. FIFA realised that that doesn't, isn't right. So they decide that there's going to be a playoff. So they take all the losing nations who haven't qualified, put them into a big bowl and pull out the first name out of the hat, which is Wales. Wales have to then play Israel to qualify for the 58 World Cup. And understandably, 
batter Israel and they qualify effectively by proxy. And they get to the quarterfinals and they lose narrowly to the great Brazilian side. Pele scores a particularly decent goal. You can find it on YouTube. Outside of that, the next time they qualify is when they expand the tournament for the Euros. So they go through effectively 58 years without getting into a tournament. The Scots have never got out of the group stages at the World Cup and haven't qualified for a major international tournament since 1998. The Northern Irish have a seminal moment at the 82 World Cup where they narrowly beat the host Spain due to a Jerry Armstrong goal. As a result, collectively, considering the amount of talent all three of those countries have produced you know, historically, their performances in a World Cup and in the Euros is really a sort of fairy tale Gareth Bale inspired run to the semi finals where they're beaten easily by the eventual winners, Portugal. I fully understand entirely why anybody who is Scottish, Welsh, Northern Irish wants their, to have their own national team and that they're quite happy and it doesn't particularly bother them that they haven't won. I fully understand. But in terms of, if you're just simply looking at who would be the most successful, you know, let me rephrase that, winning. If you were just interested in winning out of anything else, yeah, a British national team in the 70s would have been dangerous. A British national team today would be dangerous. I imagine they would have won more World Cups. Now, if you look at it, you'd have to say that the Italians have always benefited from the huge expat communities in Argentina. So there's always, you know, even from 34 onwards, there's been players you know, who are Argentine, who have Italian ancestry, who play for the Italian national team. And you've had situations where Brazilians have played for the Portuguese national team. You've had Portuguese players play for the Brazilian. There, there is always some crossover, and yet really England have never had that. Now, they've had that most definitely at rugby, and they've most definitely had that at cricket. But that's just, that's beside the point. But simply... Criticising the English national team outright is, is to ignore how strongly the home nations have influenced English domestic football and how that's had a deleterious effect on the English national team. And the problem is, is that there is no great solution. There's no easy, there's no other example that I can think of in a sporting context where having a percentage of players from your, from a territory of which you're sort of, yeah, I, I think that's, it's just a very awkward situation in that regard. It is, Britain is a, singular territory and yet the English Football League and the Premier League is the strongest out of all of those leagues which naturally then leads to the best Welsh players, the best Irish, well best Northern Irish players and the best Scottish players inevitably coming to England to play football. 
but I, I cannot think of another system where the same impact has been had in the sense that they are you can be British but at the same time you will play for uh, you play for Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales and as a result it leaves the FA or England managers in a position that no other no other major European, Latin American, African has the same issue at which point you have players that play who are fantastically gifted, who are part of your territory, but cannot play for your national team. And I suppose you could argue now with the relative decline of Northern Ireland in terms of, in other words, Northern Ireland no longer producing players of the ilk of Jennings or George Best and the decline of Scottish football, it's no longer as much of an issue as it was maybe in the 70s when you had fantastic Scottish teams and relatively, you know, relatively speaking, poorer English teams. But it still had an impact historically. And I suppose it's very awkward, even talking about this, I found this awkward without wanting to... I'm not, you know, decrying the Scottish national team, the Welsh national team, or the Northern Irish one, but it has had an effect, and it's something that isn't necessarily going to be brought up every single time England lose. To end this podcast, I'm, as I'm going to split the overall podcast into two. This is going to be part one. I've got two questions really I'm going to try and answer. Is is Alf Ramsey an ideologue? And really, in certain regards, who are English great who are England's greatest players? It's not an easy answer in terms of whether he is an ideologue or not. In some regards he is in terms of using the 443 formation, the Wingless Wonders. And his commitment to getting the best players that work for the right system and selecting people in regard regardless of reputation. But he ends up being a guidepost, a I suppose in some ways more of a flowchart. In other words, some of the some of his rules for deep for building a squad would have been fantastic had England managers of the future mm. after 66 followed them. You know, don't select half-fit players. Find the right system. Mm. You know, don't pick players on reputation. But they tend to be truism. They, they don't have the ideological purity of total football. It's not particularly inspirational. It's not soaring. It's not you know, Cesar Minotti and the Argentine team was 78. It's not total football. It's not the great football that was played by the West Germans in 74 and the Bayern team that won three European Cups in a row in the 70s. It's not Samba football that the Brazilians played. It's not the wonderful football that the revolutionary football that the, the Hungarians played in the 50s. It's much more... It's There's no real superstars that play in Alf Ramsey's English teams, really outside of Bobby Charlton and Jimmy Greaves and Bobby Moore. But the point is is that Bobby Moore is a brilliant centre-half, but he is not a 
transcendental centre-half in the way that maybe a Beckenbauer is, or maybe a Maldini. In other words, Maldini could play sweeper, he could play centre-half, he could play in a back three, a back four, he could play a full-back, he could play a left-wing-back, he could do. He could play in centre-mid. Whereby, with Bobby Moore, he's more of just a centre-half, one of the world's best centre-halves, but... That's it, he's fantastic on the ball, he's great in the tackle, he's great at reading the game. But there's any number of brilliant centre-halves are great in that respect. But it's not Beckenbauer. Beckenbauer, is, in certain regards, you know, he gets to the final when he's very young in 66. He gets to the semi-final in 70. He gets to the final and wins at home in 74. He cha- He creates the idea of a librero sweeper someone who can play in midfield who can play in defense who can spring attacks who can make late runs and score and so let's say you take lineker for instance he's a brilliant center forward he is effective you know he is able to have success abroad in barcelona he's able to have success in domestic football you know he plays in a title winner in Everton, he plays for a brilliant Spurs team in the you know late eighties, early nineties, and he's great in major tournaments. He can get multiple goals, but he is just a archetypal centre forward. Just like there are you know over football history, many brilliant centre forwards, and he is just one of that number. But he's not. He isn't really a transcendental figure like a, a Messi, or a Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, his record, goal-scoring records is impressive, but it's not at the same level that you would say of a, a Gerd Müller. Which then brings you really on to sort of Charlton. And as an inside forward, he's fantastic, he scores a lot of goals, but it's a very high-scoring age of international football, and football in general. It's only really when you start to get to maybe the late 60s and to an extent in the 70s that football starts, that goal scoring starts to, to fade. Whereby when he starts his career in the mid-50s, high scoring games are fairly common. And there's the level of international football is that you have some fantastic teams at the top, but you have some very ordinary teams. He scores hat-tricks against, in a, I think, 10-1 win against America. He scores a hat-trick in a 7-0 win against Mexico. There are some very poor teams and the difference between those teams is huge. It's seven, eights, nines, tens. And really, he's the total midfielder, but then a lot of players have that designation. It's really, what I'm saying is, is that he's in the top 100 greatest footballers of all time. But I wouldn't necessarily put him in the top 20. He's not a transcendental figure like Cruyff is. When Cruyff is brilliant, at Ajax, they win European Championships. He goes to Spain and he changes the way how the Spanish league is. The Spanish league becomes a lot more open, a lot more attacking, a lot less defensive after Johan Cruyff goes to Barcelona. He's not maybe in the same way of a Maradona. And I don't want that to be read as an overt criticism of Bobby Charlton, effectively what his international career is, he's a fantastic inside goal-scoring forward, 
And with the advent of Jimmy Greaves, he sort of drops back and then becomes an, a complete midfielder. In other words, he's able to, you know, someone who could neutralise a Franz Beckenbauer. He's someone who could still score goals. He's someone whose work rate and defensive nous, as well as his ability to time runs, to pass the ball and score, he's still a fantastic player. But they're all traditional. They're traditional positions and they are just excellent technicians at that. Whereby, if you look at maybe the sort of maverick players that England have had, so you're looking more at Gascoigne and to an extent Rooney, the problem is is that where the maverick players who are truly amazing, truly brilliant, you're talking about Maradona, Cruyff, maybe even Ronaldinho over a shorter period of time. And what they can do is that they can change the way how a system works. They managers will build the system around them. In other words, Maradona can take a very ordinary-looking Argentine team of the 80s all the way to the final in 86 and win. They can take an even slightly worse Argentine team to the final in 90 and basically become the fulcrum. In other words, the rest of the team is effectively keeping it tight at the back, working for Maradona to get the best out of him and he is able to take that, take that responsibility and with his own personal form of genius take that to the absolute peak at the absolute highest level of international football where the pressure is on, where essentially the weight of a country's expectations are solely on your shoulders. Whereby with, and someone like Cruyff, so in other words, <laughs> Cruyff isn't just someone who takes orders from Renus Michael in terms of creating total football. He is an absolutely huge intellectual part of it. He is, and the players that are surrounding him, the Niskins, Johnny Rep, they are all players that add to it. In other words, the framework is there and is you know, done by the manager, but they also add it. In other words, the more genius the players show, the easier it is to flesh out the bones of total football. But then when you look at Gascoigne and Rooney, they don't have that tactical maturity to basically be the centre point of the team. In other words, the way how Gascoigne in the two international tournaments he pitches up to, he has managers who are paternalistic towards him. In other words, they they get the best out of Gascoigne by essentially taking on a paternal role. And they look after him and they, I suppose, put up with some of his... You know, it's the garters a brush comment. But at the same time, none of them are able to trust him in regards to... Creating a, a brand new system. In other words, you couldn't have, even at Talia 90 or even Euro 96, had a formation in which Gascoigne was playing maybe the Maradona role. You just, he wasn't reliable enough, he wasn't trustworthy enough. Effectively, you just had to accept that Gazza was a fantastic instinctual football player, instinctive football player, but he was not someone who was t 
tactically particularly aware. He wasn't someone who wanted to sit in a room and go over tactics in a way that a Cruyff would. He's not someone that would have the thought process that a Messi would have and the fluidity to work within with the other players around. In other words, you just stuck Gascoigne in midfield and Gascoigne did his thing. And that was fantastic. He was still a fantastically gifted football player. But he is not at that level. He doesn't transcend midfield roles. Midfields do not change the result of Paul Gascoigne in the way that uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, a Lionel Messi, a Cruyff, a Maradona have changed football. And Rooney is a classic example. Again, he lacks that tactical maturity. In other words, he doesn't know how to play with other players. He just rocks up, does his thing, scores his goals, and he has, again, a fantastic club record, a fantastic international record to an extent. But at the absolute peak of international competition, Rooney is not an effective player. Gascoigne is more effective, but I was reading an interesting thing where Dietmar Harman was talking about the... Italian 90 semi-final between West Germany and England where Gascoigne makes the disastrous tackle that gets in the yellow that would keep him out of the final when he breaks down. And Harmon took a completely different view of it than our traditional English view which is very much... is that it was a moment of national coming together. In other words, we all empathised. We were all... Paul Gascoigne's friends, family, we all understood exactly what he was going through because we were going through it ourselves. His view was is that actually in Germany, had you shown that level of singular emotion, in other words, you weren't focusing on the team, you'd just broken down in tears, that was bad. That was a negative. You wouldn't be it wouldn't that moment wouldn't have meant quite the same thing to the German people as it did to us. And that Gascoigne was too emotional by the time it reached the penalty shootout to take the penalty. That's Chris Waddle had to take it and Chris Waddle missed. And as a result, that contributed to England losing. And I think it's interesting that in that regard, that our two most gifted maverick players who had that potential to transcend weren't able to do so. And that their emotional states, in other words, with Rooney, he got sent off in 2006 for treading on Ricardo Carvalho's nutsack. It, and that you know, Gascoigne's you know, emotional mental issues off the field and how that damaged his career, it begs a question really... Is it, it's a sort of almost a chicken and the egg argument. Is it that we don't have the managers that are able to utilise those players, you know, or players like uh, Matthew Letizia or Glenn Hoddle to an extent? Or is it simply that our footballing culture didn't imbue those players with the necessary tactical understanding so that, Rooney could use his ability or could have done what we see Messi do when he plays for Barcelona and to an extent when he plays for Argentina. In other words, Messi can be the number nine, but he can drop to the ten. Or if the if the composition of the team is needs him to go on the left, he'll go on the left or he can go on the right. Whereby Rooney 
every single England manager tried their absolute best. They tried to him with a big number nine in Emil Heskey. They tried him with Peter Crouch. They tried him with all different sorts of you know, formations and partners. And none of them ever... Re- he never was able to build much of an international understanding with any of his teammates. He was almost overtly singular in that regards. And that none of the players, great players on the list that I gave you earlier, were like that. Not, especially none of the transcendental players. So in other words, for a lot of English national team, it has been a top-down process. In other words, Bobby Robson wasn't able to trust Paul Gascoigne to become a transcendental player. He just had to be a great midfielder and roll the dice and hope for the best. And in the end, Gazza's reckless challenge, you know, if he hadn't made that challenge, what would have happened then? Could England have won that semi-final? Could they have then gone on and beaten Argentina? That's counterfactual. But in the same way that why wasn't Rooney ever able to have the any form of sort of tournament success outside of the first time when he burst onto the scene in Euro 2004 where he was playing as a very, just a free role. They simply said, look, we're not putting you under any pressure. Go out there and perform. And that once teams then made the adjustment, he was never quite the same player ever again. It seems that English players are not, they are traditionalists. They are either excellent technicians at their job or they are too emotionally and tactically immature to be able to play a transcendental role. So it always has to be top-down. There's never been the, I suppose, platonic ideal of an intellectual England player that was able to work with a coach to build something. So we're left with Ramsey had to be a top-down. In other words, his system was over-reliant on his judgment which, when it was 40 and 70, was disastrous. In other words, that substitution. It was made for the right reasons, with a a perfect logic, but at the time in that game, with the issues with Bonetti being in goal, it was a terrible decision. It helped the Germans come back into that game, and it helped the Germans win the game. there, There doesn't seem... I can't think, off the top of my head, of any manager that had the I think level of tactical ingenuity that a Valery Lobanovsky, the legendary manager of the USSR and Dynamo Kiev had. And maybe you could argue that no English managers ever had the sorry English coach. Because managers for me are people that buy players. And that they have long pre-seasons. And they build things over years and years. Whereby international football, it's you're a coach. Yes, you might pick the players. But really, you only have so little time to manage them. That in effect, you are dependent on the players. It has to, you know, the best World Cup teams are collaborative. The most legendary teams. Because it is the players and the manager coming up with a solution. Whereby no England team, you know, really outside of maybe 66, but even with 66, it was very much a top-down principle. In other words, the most gifted player on that team, the one that was considered world-class, was really Jimmy Greaves. And once he gets injured, it's actually his backup who was 
a solid player in his own right in Jeff Hurst, who then goes on to become the hero. It's him that gets that the hat trick in the final. And it's Bobby Charlton whose main job in the 66 World Cup final is shadowing Beckenbauer, which I'll, I think I'll talk about more in part two. I think to end this podcast, I'm going to make a point that in some ways the issue that we have with 1966 is that the ordinariness of the England team in terms of their personality made it quite difficult for us to, I suppose, reimagine and reconstruct the team in the way how the outsized personalities of the great Brazilian teams of the 50s, 60s and 70s, in a way that the outsized personality of Beckenbauer, of Cruyff, Baradona, made an, a, a cultural impact in their countries that I feel 66 never quite attained. And I, I'm going to really try and expand on that point in part two. Thanks for listening.